welcome to this bonus episode of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and we're going to be picking up our conversation today that we started earlier in the week about the really transformative deal that happened last week, announced by the Chinese between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the pact to restore diplomatic ties between the two countries. It caught a lot of people off guard. This was not something that people were anticipating to happen. And today, we're really just going to keep the conversation going about all the different perspectives to understand what are the ramifications of this deal. And that's why I'm thrilled to have with us today uh, Mohammed Soleimani, who is the director of strategic technologies and the cybersecurity program at the Middle East Institute in Washington, and also a manager at McClarty Associates of the Middle East and North Africa practice. So, Mohammed, welcome back to the show. It's great to speak with you. Let's just get started and give us your first reaction when you. You heard the news of the normalization of ties and this pact that was announced last week. What was your take? Thank you, Eric. It's always great to be back with the program. I think it's a big development. I think my response was this is a really, really big development. We have China being able to broker plan that goes beyond Asia, beyond the Indo-Pacific, into the Gulf and the broader Middle East. I think it's significant. I think it's symbolic. However, I'm a voice of dissent in Washington. I think it's great and big from optics standpoint, I don't really think it is a game changer when it comes to the U.S. positioning in the Gulf. So I think this is my caveat. Why? I think part of it is when you look into the actual security footprint in the Gulf is very heavily aligned in the United States. The United States is still the main security partner to the Gulf states, the chief among them Saudi Arabia. We have seen the news the one day before the deal that Saudi Arabia already in talks with the Biden team about what are the requirements for Saudi Arabia to normalize relationship with Israel. And when you look into what the Saudis have been asking for, very specific, they're asking for U.S. security guarantees, they're asking for U.S. support for a civilian nuclear program in Saudi Arabia, and number three, they're looking for a military sales. So the, this is not really the requirements uh, that a country would ask for if they don't really believe the United States has the most dominant position in the Gulf. So that's my rationale for why I don't think that the uh, Beijing back plan between Iran and Saudi Arabia is not really a game changer on the position of United States and the Gulf. So do you think there's a link between, and just let me understand if, if I understand what you're saying, there's a link between what the Saudis were putting in to the U.S. and Israel for a request to normalize ties with Israel and the timing of this announcement with the Chinese and the Iranians? I don't think so. I think the Bolster Journal story is more of trying to get how Saudis think in general. They're asking much more broader questions than discussing actual normalization. I don't think they are linked. I think they're separate. I think the reason why Saudis went to China, part of it is the United States was not really able to go back to the Iran deal. We're not really able to secure another agreement with Iran on the nuclear program. And this is something that partners and allies in the Gulf are very concerned about. And of course, Israel, we had a stalemate for the last four or five years with Iran. Uh, and again, uh, quite frankly, the United States was not really able to reach any sort of de-escalation with the Iranians on regional security affairs, right? Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen, this all stalemate. And then eventually you need to go beyond the deadlock and look for other player. And the other player that emerged in China. But also, I have to say that China was the only country that was able to bring the two countries together. Part of it is it has significant economic influence of the region, a major trading partner. It's a major uh, importer of energy coming from Iran and Saudi Arabia, have good transaction relationship with the two capitals. 
So it was very well positioned to be that sort of capital that will host the two countries. But there's a caveat here. Then the caveat here is, it's still a plan, it's not really an agreement. And I want to advise against jumping into conclusions. They only agreed on opening embassies and having a high-level meeting that includes the two foreign ministers discussing a roadmap between the two countries. So also, I think there was a lot of media hype uh, surrounding the plan, uh, trying to claim that this is much more of a broader agreement between the two capitals. I don't believe so. I think Saudi Arabia will be cautious about how Iran is going to move forward. There's a still lack of confidence. And quite frankly, it's not really the first time that we have an agreement or some sort of a plan with the Iranians. The Iranians have had plans and negotiations and discussions with other regional powers for the last many years. And again, this is here we are. There are many regional issues. It's still on the line. Now, you spend a lot of time in the kingdom. You go back and forth quite a bit. I guess the part that I'm struggling to understand a little bit is that if the Saudis wanted to you know, maintain these strong security ties with Washington, even acceding to this long-standing request from the United States to normalize ties with Israel, they have to know that the Chinese are enemy number one in D.C. and in the Beltway, and that this kind of relationship would not land well on Capitol Hill, it would not land well within the think tank community, and it would potentially alienate and put Biden into a very difficult position in terms of how he manages this. So I just, I don't understand the rationale from the Saudis if they are in fact not trying to put distance between themselves and Washington, that this deal would make sense at this time. I think it's an excellent question. I would say that this is a reflection of multipolarity, right? I think the reason why people were shocked in Washington, I think they were shocked by the fact that Washington is not the only game in town. And yes, Washington is not the only game in town. You have other partners, you have other nations that are willing to step up their own integration with other regions. Chief among them, of course, China. Not only China, it's China, it's Japan, it's Korea, it's Malaysia, it's Indonesia, it's Turkey. So I think China is not really unique into this realm. The thing is China's size and weight and relationship with Washington is making this a bit unique, is a bit uh, more toxic, quite frankly, from a local standpoint in Washington. For, but from the Saudi side, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, China is the second most important country. It's a major player, it's a trading partner. It's a country that has a good transaction relationship with many of these regional powers. And I think right now, Saudi Arabia and other countries are trying to tell Washington that the unipolar moment is over. And you can see that with how they responded to the Ukraine war, right? It's not only Saudi, Saudi Arabia, it's Indonesia, it's India, a country that's a member of Quad, that's still on the fence when it comes to the question of how to respond to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that's another reflection of, again, the end of unipolarity. This is a multipolar system. It's fine to have good relationship with Washington and also try to pursue good relationship with Beijing. And how do you think that message is being received in Washington? My experience in the Beltway is that people don't have a high tolerance for that kind of thing. They still think that this is a unipolar moment. They still see China as a threat. They don't believe in the same type of multipolarity that you're talking about. So I'm curious when the Saudis are conveying that message and people like you as well are conveying that message, what is the response from the establishment in D.C.? The response in Washington is overreaction. And the problem with overreaction is uh, that Washington starts freaking out and pursue a tit-for-tat policy with the Chinese. I don't think this is wise. I think it's irrational. I think it's leading us to uh, overexhaust our own resources and diplomatic ties. It's fine. If China wants to play a part between Iran and Saudi Arabia, one of the most toxic and very contagious bilateral relationship in the Middle East, if China wants to own that, be my guest. They have to carry this water. I think that's fine. We should be okay with that. 
We should be confident about where we are, but we also need to be clear with our own partners and allies about what we care about. Because right now, I don't really think that the Biden team laid out a clear strategy for the Middle East. I don't think I know what exactly they want in the Middle East. Do you still think about the Middle East as a priority theater? So, okay, we need to take care of some of the regional issues like Iran, or the Middle East is not really a priority theater and we need to move uh, our own resources to the Indo-Pacific uh, where we think about Taiwan as the most important issue for us in Washington. But I, don't, I think we are trying to walk and chew gum at the same time, and this is leading to always being taken by surprise, and when we're being taken by surprise that we're trying to overreact. Well, I guess it depends on if you look at words or actions, because the words say that the Middle East is still very much as important as it's always been, but the actions are fist bumps instead of handshakes with the king of Saudi Arabia or the prince of Saudi Arabia. So in that sense, you know, there is a difference in terms of how the U.S. is committed to the region. But I guess my assumption is that within 24 hours of this deal that came through is the Israeli ambassador to Washington picked up the phone, called his counterpart, you know, or his interlocutor at the State Department and said, we need to talk because this deal now is really one of our worst nightmares because Iran is enemy number one for the Israelis. And the United States has the special relationship with Tel Aviv. How do you think this plays out in terms of the U.S.-Israeli relationship? Because in many ways, the reaction in Israel was very similar to the reaction in the United States, which is, this is not good. Again, I'm going to go back to the original point. I think there's nothing really that Washington and Tel Aviv can do about it. I think it's Saudi is a G20 powerhouse, a country that's very capable with very expensive networks of allies and partners, and want to de-escalate the situation in the Gulf. And the right way to think about that is trying to have a direct negotiations with the Iranians. And this direct line was supposed to go through Washington, but Washington was not able to actually uh, end the deadlock with the Iranians since 2018. Since Washington left the Iran nuclear deal, and then we had the escalation, we had the confrontation in Syria and Iraq, and now we have the Biden team, Biden saying that uh, the Iran nuclear deal is dead, but we're not going to declare it dead. I mean, at some point, they eventually the Saudis needed to go pursue other uh, venues of communications with the Iranians. And this is not really new. I mean, the administration is very well aware of these negotiations with these talks that have been taking place in Baghdad and included the French in Oman in the last two years. So actually, that sort of dialogue between Saudis and the Iranians is not really new. I'm actually surprised that Washington's surprise. And I think the surprise in Washington is not really because the Iranians and the Saudis are talking. I think the surprise in Washington is there is a China component. So this differentiate between the concerns in Washington and the concerns in Tel Aviv. The concerns in Washington that China is playing a role in the Middle East between the Iranians and the Saudis because they are very aware that the Iranians and the Saudis were talking together and that was fine because eventually they need to talk together to tackle questions like the question of Yemen, the question of Lebanon, the question of Iraq. But when it comes to Israel, I think Israel, the assumption in Israel was uh, we're going to normalize relationship with Saudi Arabia tomorrow. We're going to have an alliance against Iran, and Saudi Arabia is going to be a fundamental pillar of that. That was the assumption, which, again, is very legitimate strategic thinking in Israel. However, they took some elements of the Saudi foreign policy for granted. And part of it is, quite frankly, the Netanyahu government was somehow a sit back uh, for some of the strategic or some of the dialogues that have been taking place in the region when it comes to integration of Israel into the broader regional framework. Now, the news today came out that the Iranians are now opening up negotiations with some of their other rivals in the region, namely Egypt and some other Sunni states. 
Do you think that this opens a door for a broader engagement with Iran, much like the Abraham Accords opened up, you know, Israeli-Arab ties across the region in an unprecedented way? Or are we still too early in this process to make that conclusion? I'm a very cautious guy. People always talk, right? Shadows have always been there. The Iranians and Saudis have been talking for many years. And finally, they just had a roadmap. I'm not familiar exactly with what are they discussing with other regional powers. Again, uh, Egypt, one of them. But I'll be very cautious to jump into conclusion and say, we're about to have another Abraham Accords between Iran and the Arab states. Very early on. You know, I talked to somebody earlier this morning and they said what they would like to see from the Iranians is much like what happened in the Northern Ireland settlement, where the IRA literally put their weapons in the ground. They buried the weapons and the weapons were put away. And they want to see tangible actions in Yemen, in Lebanon and other places for the Iranians to change their posture and to pull out their forces and to stop the flow of money before anything can move beyond the rhetoric. They want to see the substantive actions. And I think that that was a very interesting comparison to me is to see, you know, again, the guns have to be out of hands and in the ground. And now putting the guns in the ground means they can be dug up again in the future. So it's not a permanent ceasefire, but it's just to say for now, you know what, we're committed to this process working, we're going to put our guns away, we're making substantive concessions, let's talk. Do you see the Iranians actually making those concessions, are those the markers that maybe other partners in the region are looking for as to whether or not to determine if the Iranians are serious? In my viewpoint, I know I'm a, a very hardcore realist. I think I want to differentiate between tactical de-escalation and strategic alignment. I think what we're seeing is tactical de-escalation. I think the region is exhausted. Part of it is there is a major war that is sucking up the air globally, which is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. On top of that, we're not really sure about the situation in Asia when it comes to Taiwan. And now we have also the Middle East itself has been consumed by civil wars and proxy conflict in more than 10 years. So also there is a sense of exhaustion in the region and countries want to de-escalate. And you can see that with the way that the normalization between Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the UAE, the, the dialogue between Turkey and Egypt did not really uh, succeed yet, but still talking. I think you, we should see the Iran-Saudi uh, plan through this length. It's much more tactical de-escalation, trying to make sure that saying there's some sort of red line, or as we say, putting the competition within a framework. Let's make sure that we're not really attacking oil facilities. And this is something that's a direct Chinese interest, making sure that the flow of energy is secure. And number two, trying to make sure that we're trying to discuss uh, file by file. We know we're not going to agree on every single file in the region, but at least let's talk about the most pressing file, which is Yemen. So that's that's basically the way I view it. Some Chinese scholars are saying that this was a low-risk, high-reward proposition because if it fails, as many people expect it might, or it doesn't live up to the full expectations, China can walk away and say, listen, we tried. Uh, they'll probably find some way to blame the United States for the failure. or you know, But if it wins, or even if it moderately succeeds, then China gets all the credit for it, as it did last week. But help us understand your perception of the Chinese risk calculation. Clearly, what the Chinese scholars laid out to you looked like what was the calculus in Beijing, and I understand, I understand their rationale. I think my assessment will actually be a bit different. I think it's high risk, high reward. I absolutely agree on the high reward part. Again, if it succeeded, that's fantastic without really having a traditional military and security footprint in the region, we're able to broker a broader normalization plan between the two major players, the two major powers in the Gulf. 
So I get that, 100%. And think about also from great power competition length, we're speaking of if, if America is pivoting, if Washington pivoting to the Indo-Pacific, uh, we are pivoting to the east, to the Gulf. So it makes a lot of sense strategically. However, I think that the risk profile is, is high. If China failed, I think it undermines the argument that China is capable of replacing the U.S. as a security slash a strategic player outside of its own sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific. Why I'm saying that, I think, remember, Paris, and specifically President Macron in the last three years, has been trying actively to bring the Iranians and the rest of the regional powers to the table. And he couldn't do it. He failed, right? And it had a very significant, I'm not going to say damaged the French credibility, but let's say it uh, kept the French at pay and humbled their ambitions when it comes to them trying to play a role vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Americans in the Middle East. So there is that risk, and we, it happened before with the French recently. So I think I would disagree with the Chinese scholar and say it could be high risk. It could be high risk. Just want to wrap this up. For those folks who don't follow this issue as carefully as you do every day, help us better understand what are some of the markers and some of the, the clues that you're going to be keeping an eye on over the next one to two weeks to see which direction this is going. What are you looking for? I think one to two weeks will be short time to assess the plan. I think I will look for the next two months, specifically around the foreign minister's meeting. I would look into uh, Iranians, uh, the Iranians' behavior in Yemen uh, when it comes to peace agreement, when it comes to ceasefire. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a ceasefire, not a peace agreement. And see if we're able to move beyond the ceasefire into a broader settlement. If we're discussing that, I think that would be a positive sign. Also, there was a lot of fear about Iranian attacks on Saudi oil facilities. If we didn't see any sort of escalation on this front, I think this is this is a good sign too. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed. Mohammed Soleimain is the Director of Strategic Technologies and the Cybersecurity Program at the Middle East Institute in Washington and a manager at McClarty Associates' Middle East and North Africa practice. Mohammed, very quickly before we go, you're quite active on Twitter. Can you just share everybody your Twitter handle so they can follow what you're reading and writing these days? Thank you. Uh, my Twitter handle is this is Solomon. This is Solomon. Wonderful. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes and want to thank you again for taking the time to join us on this bonus episode. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with you. 